Hi, I'm Angie Brown and you are listening to the Being Luminary podcast. The podcast where I sit down with everyday but by no means ordinary thought leaders to talk about being luminary in life and in work. Today we're going to focus on developing your team and this comes as a consequence of Many, many, many people who I work with saying, we have a great team. And so I'm going to start off this session by just reassuring you that you definitely do have a great team, but also trying to give you some tools, hopefully, that your team could use or that you could use with your team to further develop their diversity, equity, inclusion practice. I just want to say in advance that there will be some provocations in the session, and I am inviting you into candid thought at least if not discussion around the way that you work in your school community towards getting this work right and also the ways that we treat each other so we're thinking as broadly as possible today about the people that make up our school communities and our treatment of others in our school communities sometimes feels like a challenge i want you to take care of yourself as you're thinking through some of these ideas i also want you to think about this is an opportunity for you to better understand some of the working relationships that maybe need to occur. Always my work is underpinned by these principles that there is no blame, no shame and no guilt. So this is not an opportunity to assign blame to any individual or to any groups of people. And of course, if anything comes up in the session that you want to have a further discussion about, if anything I say offends, if anything I say upsets, then please feel free to reach out to me and let me know. So this masterclass is about developing your team. And I would like you to think, therefore, about the resilience of your team to weather the various storms that are out there that pertain to diversity, equity, inclusion work. When I'm talking about stormy weather, I'm talking about diversity, equity, inclusion issues that kind of swirl around the perimeters and the parameters of our organization. So in terms of outside storms, examples might be the murder of George Floyd. The murder of George Floyd took place out there in the world, but came into our schools. It was weather that came into our schools as a consequence of young people and families and staff members wanting organizations to atone for ways that they had dealt with or not dealt with race appropriately. Stormy weather exists out there and is found in things like the Everyone's Invited platform. It's found in things like the Me Too movement. It's found after the events of things like the the murder of Sarah Everard. Weather that happens out there that swirls into our schools as young people think about the differences between their experience of school if they identify as male or if they identify as female. The stormy weather that I'm talking out there includes things like uprisings in Palestine, between Palestine and Israel. That weather swirls around out there. It comes into our schools as young people reflect on religious identity and the extent to which they feel included, that they feel a sense of belonging, that they feel welcome and able to have conversations about that religious identity in our schools. But there are also internal storms in our schools. And... Our ability to weather those internal storms in our schools, I believe, rests on our ability to have skillful and confident conversations with all of our stakeholders, our young people, our colleagues and the parents who support our efforts. So I first of all want to have a look at some of the 
weather out there, the stormy weather that I see coming into schools on a weekly basis. And I'm just going to give you some examples of issues, if you like, of matters pertaining to diversity, equity, inclusion that I have come into contact with certainly over the last term. I'm describing these as leadership challenges. So as head teachers, as school leaders, as executive leaders, I want you to begin to position these diversity, equity, inclusion, heavy weathers as leadership challenges. This is how they often meet us as school leaders. So let's think about this. A parent of a child who identifies as non-binary and neurodivergent writes to your school demanding an urgent meeting as they feel that not enough is being done to support their child. In fact, they believe the policies and procedures in place to be harmful. There's an important distinction here. When I do this work, I talk about policies and procedures, practices in schools being generous. And by that, I mean that they interrupt systemic inequity. This parent is writing to your school, like many parents write to schools, and they say, not only is this policy, is this procedure not generous, not only is it not even compliant, so neutral, it's actually to the detriment of my child. It is harmful to my child. And the kinds of policies and procedures that this parent might be thinking of might be your uniform policy. The kind of policies and procedures might be your approaches to trips or visits, might be the way that you organize your groupings in PE, might be the conversations that you're having in PSHE, might be the failure of procedures recognized by everybody in the staff to not gender young people. It could be any, it could be a, a whole handful of different things that this parent is identifying, but what they're identifying is that your policies and procedures are actually harmful. So we have a problem procedurally, we have a problem with policies, but we also have a, another couple of problems, don't we? Because the child here that we're talking about should be protected and their experience should be a positive one on account of your efforts in being mindful, in being well-prepared, and in being skillful at supporting those with two protected characteristics here, the characteristic of disability, but also gender. This, this child should be protected on the grounds of both of those characteristics under the terms of the Equality Act of 2010. So just think for a moment, how would your team respond to this? Have there been blank spots in their ability to respond effectively to charges of negligence on grounds of disability or gender? Are there errors in judgment that you feel that your team might make in the case of responding to this parent, in the case of responding to this child? Okay, so that's one storm. That's one example of stormy weather existing in the school. Let's take another example. Let's look at this leadership challenge. A female Muslim teacher who says that she wishes to escalate a complaint that she's made on several occasions over the years, but that she feels has not been taken seriously. She believes that the school does not make space for her to bring her identity. Continued failure to offer prayer space for her, as well as last minute arrangements being made every year for Ramadan are part of the problem. But so is being overlooked for promotion. This to her is the primary concern. This is something I hear time and time again from people who start off saying, well, the school doesn't recognise my identity and then move on to say, but the problem is with the school not recognising my identity, with the school not having the language to talk about my identity, 
is, they, is that they also overlook me in situations that are really important, in situations that would really make a difference to my agency, to my ability to get that leadership role that I've always dreamed of. So I just want you to think back again into your school and think about your team. Are your team aware of the implications of workplace discrimination? Are they aware of the implications of workplace discriminations for people on these intersections? There are three protected characteristics here, three characteristics protected under the Equality Act of 2010 that we as school leaders need to be absolutely mindful of if we're just to be neutral. But if we're to be generous, if we're to be beneficial, if we're to offer something to this colleague, then we need to be thinking and designing inclusion on account of the fact that this woman sits on the intersection of three protected characteristics, religion, race and sex. Would your leadership team be able to recognise these experiences described in this quote as one of the worst identities you could be? This is on being a Muslim woman in the UK on account of all of the weather that exists out there, but also all of the experiences that exist within institutions. Okay, how about this leadership challenge? So this leadership challenge, this heavy weather, is an example of heavy weather that I have seen time and time again over the last two years. In fact, I would say that the majority of schools that reach out to work with me are reaching out to work with me on account of this. A group of students writes an open letter to you and your leadership team, and often the governors, and often because it's open, it's published on social media. It goes to your local newspaper, and it details historic incidences of racism that the young people feel have gone unchallenged. These young people would like a response from the school, and they would like to be part of an open town hall meeting on the matter. Do your leadership team at this moment understand the scale of the problem? Are they able to put their hands on evidence that this actually is being misreported or overblown? Do they have a sense of the dialogue that has occurred around race? Are they aware about young people's feelings about racial inequity in the school? Has racial inequity been front and centre? Has it been handled sensitively? Has it at all times been handled with courage and with the care to pick up on all and any incidences of race and racial discrimination. And just being mindful of this fact that UK schools are recording more and more incidences of racism. These figures are probably quite low, 60,000 incidents in the last five years. But the true scale of the problem is being articulated by young people, often in the form of open letters, often in the form of taking to social media, and designing a whole Instagram account about your school and its failures. So there's the weather. Let's just park the weather for a moment. There are some of the leadership challenges that we're working with. But let's think a bit about your team. Let's think about your leadership team and how equipped they are to deal with some of those challenges. So it really surprises me, given the level of competence that there is in the teaching profession, given the level of subject-specific competence we have and the willingness of teachers to improve, to be constantly improving. But in this area, 
of diversity, equity, inclusion and understanding identity, admitting a lack of confidence has become so commonplace. It's like the thing we would never do about our subjects. I'm an English teacher. Would I ever walk into a room and say, I, I feel like I'm a good English teacher, but I, I just I just don't want to get it wrong when it comes to teaching medieval literature. I just I just oh, I lack I lack the skills. Of course, I wouldn't. I would find the skills. But in this area of diversity, equity, inclusion, it is absolutely commonplace and absolutely accepted for professionals to say, I lack the confidence in talking about it. The we are all a good people narrative is one I want you to think very carefully about when it comes to your SLT and to watch for. The we are all good people narrative explains why it is that most school leaders will deal with very few incidences of interpersonal discrimination. And this is because we are all good people. So we all understand that discrimination is unacceptable. We are baffled when people with protected characteristics have less than favorable experiences of our organizations because we're all good people. When we are an organization filled with really good people, we rely on our ability to use what I call our DEI emotional quotient, our DEI EQ, to drive better relationships with each other and foster a sense of belonging. There's a kind of reliance on the warmth of being a good person and the kind of knowing smile and the pat on the shoulder or the understanding nod. But in my experience, schools and educators within schools tend to very much overestimate the value of being good people, not recognising that this goodness is being articulated as a fear of engaging in powerful conversations with those people who hold protected characteristics for fear of getting it wrong or offending. We're such good people that we don't want to say the wrong thing. This is actually, we are such good people that we don't want to talk about things narrative. That's what it is. And it's pernicious. And it is very challenging for those people who hold marginalized identities to trust in good people who will not have conversations with them about their identities, about the impact of the heavy weather out there, about the experience of the heavy weather inside our schools. So what we are trying to do, what we are striving for, what my work is about, and the reason that you are here, is we want to have an SLT, a leadership team confident enough to have powerful conversations, to demonstrate that diversity, equity, inclusion, emotional quotient, because they have a foundational DEI intellectual quotient. And I would argue that you cannot do one, you cannot be a good person, you cannot do that EQ piece until you have embedded a foundational IQ piece. So let's turn to the IQ piece. What do I mean by that? Well, your DEI intellectual quotient is actually found in another narrative. It's found in the, this is a great organization narrative. I hear a lot of narratives in this work. This is a great organization. It's full of good people. But unlike 
the we are good people narrative, which is often overemphasized. I think the importance of this aspect of being a great organization is often underestimated. So I think we tend to underestimate how important it is for us to have this foundational set of intellectual quotient, this foundational uh, quota of quotient, of intellectual quotient in our organizations. So tests of our DEI IQ will be measured in our understanding of an agreed set of key vocabulary theories and concepts that wrap around each of the protected characteristics. Sometimes our policies house our DEI IQ. And so we have confident conversations with our um, external inspectors like Ofsted, and we can kind of prove our IQ in, in that area. But usually it's about proving a DEI IQ level compliance. It's not necessarily about the beneficial level. And, and what I see in organizations is, is that we kind of have a surface level but when we scratch under the surface, we are rarely very secure with it. And what I'm arguing for in this session is that we get really, really secure with it. Because this is who the DEI IQ pertains to. These are the nine protected characteristics protected under the Equality Act of 2010. These are who this DEI IQ pertains to. So we have the protected characteristic of age. We have disability. We have gender reassignment, marriage or civil partnership, pregnancy and maternity, race, religion or belief, we have sex, and we have sexual orientation. So nine protected characteristics. And our DEIIQ, that foundational piece, the intellectual quotient around these characteristics, needs to be something that in our organisations we commit to developing in order that we can begin to really demonstrate that DEIEQ, that ability to then have powerful conversations. And until we have done this, committed to this foundational piece, I would argue it's impossible to really be those very, very good people. And this is why it matters. It matters because those people who hold those protected characteristics, those stakeholders, face a level of challenge in modern day Britain that we should all feel is unacceptable, that we should all be disgusted by, that we should all find horrifying. And this data in the UK is matched and mirrored globally. So wherever we are in the globe, there are a handful, sometimes more, sometimes less, less of those, sorry, sometimes more, sometimes fewer of those protected characteristics. So in some countries, sexual orientation isn't protected. In other countries, uh, fortune and, and birth status is protected. But wherever we are in the world, we have a handful of protected characteristics because globally we have a commitment to human rights. And where, wherever we are in the world, we find that people who hold those protected characteristics face unacceptable levels of threat. So in the year ending March 2021, there are 124,091 hate crimes recorded by police in England and Wales of which three quarters, as with every year, are accounted for by racially motivated hate crimes. So 92,052 race hate crimes perpetrated against people on the grounds of holding that protected characteristic in the year ending March 2021. 6,377 religious hate crimes, 18,596 sexual orientation hate crimes, 
9,943 disability hate crimes and 2,799 hate crimes perpetrated against people on the grounds of being transgender. So this is why the work matters. And this is why developing a foundational DEI IQ is so important, because we need to be able to have conversations with our stakeholders who hold those identities with powerful EQ, because outside your schools, this is what they face. This is what your stakeholders face. And just to contextualize why I am so passionate about organizations identifying this DEI IQ, well, it's because if your leaders, your leadership team can't speak to our transgender and non-binary young people, then how adequately prepared are they going to be to support them through this? Transgender hate crimes, as I said, reached 2,799 recorded at the end of the recording year of 2021, March 2021, and that was an increase of 16% on the previous year. This number is absolutely enormously massively underreported because out of 108,000 responses to, uh, to a national LGBT survey, 88% of transgender people did not report the most serious kind of incident. 48% of transgender people not satisfied with the police response after reporting the most serious types of incident. And transgender people are more likely to experience threats of physical or sexual harassment or violence compared with the rest of the LGBT community. So there are some hidden hate crimes being perpetrated here, specifically um, aimed at the transgender community. Got massive underreporting because we have a huge lack of trust in people's acceptance, willingness to believe that a transgender hate crime is even happening. And if your colleagues can't talk with a powerful DEI IQ about gender, then how are they going to have these conversations with young people about their experiences? And if that's happening out there in the world around your young people who identify as trans and non-binary, then what's happening inside the schools? Because inside our schools, these institutional inequities still exist for our transgender and non-binary pupils. The Just Like Us report identified that trans pupils were a particular risk of bullying, so 51% being bullied at school for being transgender, for identifying as transgender. 68% of pupils reporting that their teachers only sometimes or never challenge homophobic, transphobic or biphobic language when they hear it. Young homeless people who identify as LGBTQ plus reported that the top three reasons for their homelessness were parental rejection, abuse within the family, aggression or violence in the family. At least 23% of non-binary children aged 12 plus have engaged in self-harm and or overdose. Only 29% of LGBT people say that teachers intervene when they are present during that bullying. One in three transgender pupils, so 33%, were not able to be known by their affirming name at school. And around three in five, 58% of transgender and non-binary pupils were not allowed to use the toilets that they felt most comfortable in. So your team, your school's ability to have conversations with young people hinges on them having this DEI IQ. It hinges on it because 
you know, Kimberly Crenshaw said, if you can't name a problem, if you don't have the language for the problem, then you can't see it. And if you can't see it, you can't solve it. And this for me is found in figures like pupils avoiding dealing with transphobic bullying. It's almost like I, I don't really know what that language means. So I can't really see that the transphobic bullying is occurring. So I can't solve the transphobic bullying. And, and not to oversimplify, we have a tendency as educators to feel as though we need to be people who know more than we do. We have this complex around being authorities. So when we lack that language, we genuinely lack confidence because our expertise is challenged. When our expertise is challenged, we tend to walk in the other direction. And so this is why this work matters. And just to return for a moment to this letter from a parent, letter from a parent of a child who identifies as non-binary and neurodivergent, who's written to the school demanding an urgent meeting because not enough is being done to support their child. This parent who believes policies and procedures in place are harmful. Well, let's think again. How can we reassure this parent? What skills do we need to develop? Let's have a moment then, a segue into exactly that. So I want to think about diversity, equity, inclusion and deliberate practice just for the next um, few moments. And I would like you to consider this because so many of our schools and so many of you will be engaged in the use of deliberate practice in a whole raft of uh, different approaches to your CPD, to teacher development. You'll be using deliberate practice in and out of classrooms, no doubt. But as I said at the beginning, there was a kind of failure to commit to this work, which really concerns me because diversity, equity, inclusion is safeguarding work at the very least but it's brilliant for the world at the very best. So why on earth would we settle with we're good people, but we lack the skills rather than we're good people and we commit to it through DEI deliberate practice? Jeff Colvin summarizes deliberate practice as such in talent is, under, is overrated. Sorry, Many of you will know this um, or will have seen, uh, have seen this work and this probably quote is familiar to you, but I'm going to read it anyway. And I want you to think about diversity, equity, inclusion, intellectual quotient, and deliberate practice as I'm reading this quote out. So deliberate practice is characterized by several elements, each worth examining. It's an activity designed specifically to improve performance, often with a teacher's help. It can be repeated a lot. Feedback on results is continuously available. It's highly demanding mentally, whether the activity is purely intellectual, such as chess or business-related activities, or heavily physical, such as sports. And it isn't much fun. <laughs> I think you can agree that the moments of discomfort around getting it wrong, not having the terminology in place, not knowing how to define some of those terms, Having a child say, you can't use that word. Reading something about race, reading something about religion, reading a text about disability, ableism, can be deeply, deeply uncomfortable. It isn't much fun. But with practice, with deliberate practice, we get better and better and better. 
at doing the work and are showing up as people who are really committed to creating a better world. So I want you to feel the discomfort and I want you to feel as though this isn't much fun. And I want you to see if the introduction of deliberate practice when it comes to developing a DEI intellectual quotient could unlock some increased skill and confidence in your leadership team. So deliberate practice, what do we know about it? Deliberate practice means setting clear goals. So I'm setting you the challenge of the clear goal being developing a a skill as uh, learning diversity, equity, inclusion, literacy. So let's develop DEI literacy and fluency. Literacy, we know the terms fluency, we know how to use them. Let's set that out from the offset because you are here and you've committed to this time and you've committed to this work. And let's now think about identifying a specific goal within that. So for Ericsson, who writes, obviously, as we all know about deliberate deliberate practice, well-defined and specific goals mean small goals. So when applied to something like sport, physical terms, it's the difference between the goal, become a better basketball player, and the goal, dribble with the left hand while sprinting. So we need to reduce down our commitment to literacy and fluency into something that's small and allows us achievable progress without overloading our brain's cognitive processing power. We then are going to focus on gaining accuracy in the use of language pertaining to our transgender and non-binary young people. It's It's arguably not a small goal, but it's a specific goal. And it's small enough for people of your caliber. With the amount that your leadership team are paid, it's small enough for you to commit to. And so... This commitment to this small and specific goal enables us to become much more confident that we have been inclusive of the child identified in the letter sent in by that parent that we've been looking at. We can be confident that we have a level of DEI IQ that's enabled us to lean into a really powerful conversation with DEI EQ abound with a lot of courage. So there's our specific goal, accuracy in the use of language pertaining to our transgender and non-binary young people. Ericsson's research also tells us that deliberate practice takes heightened concentration that can be very difficult to sustain even when we care. We know that, we know that about diversity, equity, inclusion practice because after the murder of George Floyd, we all cared passionately, we all cared deeply. We committed to work, in the immediate sense, but our long-term skill began to wane because we didn't commit to it over a sustained period of time. We got caught up in the emotion of it, but didn't commit to developing a skill of talking about race over time. Long-term skill development comes in concentrated, consistent bursts of effort over time. These are the reps and the sets that we do in the gym. So for us, when we're practicing DEI, deliberate DEI practice, 
we need to clearly and consistently delineate space and time to do the work. And I know that space and time to do the work is at a premium. I know that time is our most precious resource, but we cannot be the good people with a great organization and also say, but we lack the skills and we just don't have the time to do it properly. We have to preserve the time. So preserving time for DEI practice, preserving time for the development of that conversational capacity will come through preserving time to create vocabulary lists, comprehensive vocabulary lists pertaining to each of the protected characteristics, scripts, if you like, that harness some of those conversations that we might be having with young people that give us examples of some of those letters that might come in from parents that give us opportunities to practice how we would manage through our confident use of DEI IQ, that vocabulary, how we would manage some of that heavy weather, some of those leadership challenges. Preserving time for developing conversational capacity through providing reading lists, you the leader, deciding upon a reading list, going to Dr. Google and saying, what are the texts that any leader needs to be reading about non-binary and transgender experiences? Putting those into a Google, into a Google Doc that could become a shared document. Ensuring that that is also supported by recommended viewing or recommended listening for your colleagues. Preserving the time means creating the spaces also for that development of conversational capacity. Starting your meetings, but especially your SLT meetings with a DEI check-in. I call this what in the world. So what in the world is happening that has piqued our interest? What in the world is happening that pertains to this diversity, equity, inclusion issue that we're grappling with? Come on, we're going to do a quick check-in. We go around the room. Everybody in SLT has to come up with a news story. This begins to attune your leadership team to those issues, begins to say, we are putting this on the agenda. You will be asked, you will be in the spotlight next time we have an SLT meeting. And I expect you to come to that SLT meeting with cognizance of a world event, of a story that's out there in the media that pertains to this DEI matter, that pertains to this protected characteristic of transgender and non-binary experiences in the country that we're in, in the modern day society that we are living in. So these are all examples of ways that we can preserve time for that DEI deliberate practice and that we must. But there's a further stage, isn't there? In fact, there are a few. Erickson describes practice without feedback as naive practice, and we want to engage in deliberate practice. So therefore, the perspectives of other people become really essential in order to help us uncover, identify, shine a light on some of those blank spots. We need to have opportunities for growth. We need to be able to gauge our progress. We need to be able to adjust. We need to be able to reset. And while the conversations that we have about diversity, equity, inclusion are not going to necessarily be um, comfortable at all times, we need to make sure that we are checking and providing feedback. So how do we do this as leaders? Because I am positioning you as the people who are teaching your teams. I'm positioning you as the experts because you need to become the experts. How are you going to provide feedback to your peers when you are not necessarily as confident as you want to be? 
Well, it starts by you doing some of the things that we've said already, ensuring that you are creating the space, that you're preserving the time for that practice in your own, in your own world, in your own self-development. And then as you have that space developing in senior leadership team meetings, as you're doing that what in the world check in or as you are gauging people's responses to a piece of reading that you have set them or as you're looking through how a conversation with a non-binary young person might go or how an interaction with a parent about a policy that you have might enact itself, you need to start to give feedback. You need to start to identify how and how well and how effectively your colleagues are able to use language. And you providing this feedback within the safe space of an SLT meeting means that you have preserved you have preserved the time for practice, but also means that colleagues are beginning to develop the muscles of safe reflexive practice. And what we know about diversity, equity, inclusion work is that safe reflexive practice time is the thing that makes the difference. People don't want to be practicing this out there in their classrooms before they've had a, pra- a chance to practice this in here, in the safety of a team who knows that we are all trying to do the best we can. So if somebody says something that doesn't land quite right, you as the leader have license to intervene, to micro in- in- intervene, to signal to the other person that, well, oh, maybe that isn't the right way of saying that. Maybe that would be felt as inappropriate. Maybe that will land as inappropriate. Some of those micro interventions could be physical um, gesture, they could be face, they could be, can I just pause you there? Do you want to reset? Do you want to do you want to try and say that again? Creating it with a smile, creating that space for safety pausing the conversation and saying, oh, could you tell me a bit more about what you meant then? That comment doesn't land, that comment doesn't land brilliantly well with me. Maybe you could explain a bit more what you meant when somebody is misgendering or when somebody is is saying something that you feel could be challenging for people who hold those identities. The key thing here is the work that we do so brilliantly with young people, separating the person from the action. What we're doing is this work with no blame and no shame and no guilt. So what we're looking for are opportunities to say, ah, what I heard in what you said was this. I so applaud you taking that reading that you have done about transgender experiences and bringing it to this meeting. It's such brave work. I just want you to think about the way that you used that term, dot, dot, dot. So providing feedback becomes your job as the leader. And this expertise, if you can develop it, will shore you up, will shore your leadership team up with so much confidence. I can tell you as a diversity, equity, inclusion consultant that not one single parent in your organisation wants me to come in as a consultant and talk to them about you as a group of school leaders. They want you to hold that expertise. You are in loco parentis. You are the expert they need in the room. And this piece around deliberate practice is key. For Ericsson, there is no deliberate practice without discomfort. And that discomfort comes whether we are practicing a musical instrument for hours every day or developing leadership communication, which is what we're doing here. Mastery requires us to stretch outside of our comfort zones. So we are good people, but we don't want to say the wrong thing. That's not deliberate practice. We are good people, but we don't want to say the wrong thing is lazy practice. It's not even naive. It's lazy practice. 
for diversity, equity, inclusion leaders, normalizing and recognizing discomfort is something that will mitigate that failure to move forward. It means that we won't get caught out. We will constantly be making mistakes. We will constantly be developing those muscles, those uncomfortable muscles of getting it wrong, moving through emotions and moving through those emotions with greater ease. So finding strategies, I obviously have a whole host of strategies that I would love to share with you about how we lean into discomfort, particularly in this work, becomes key. Recognize your own discomfort publicly with your team. Congratulate yourself and your team on their growth all the time. And finally, this, this piece on motivation in deliberate practice is key. So Ericsson's framework places much importance on external motivation for this practice. So this is where we have a coach. I'm positioning you, remember, as the expert and the coach who says, come on, dig deep. This is it now. We're nearly there. This is the coach. This is the teacher. This is the person who encourages externally. You can't expect your team to do this on their own to just kind of go with a reading list and you never come back to it. This is your job as the leader, as the head teacher, as the executive leader, to coach, to encourage, to facilitate these discussions, to really move your team on. And you can try this out in very subtle ways. You can have your leadership team at the end of a term, which is my suggestion when it comes to um, carving out time to do this work, spend a term on each of the protected characteristics. And at the end of that term, having had the opportunity to engage yourself in what's, what's happening in the world and to be thinking through that reading list and to be practicing that vocabulary, at the end of that term, you sit with your leadership team and you review one or two of your policies through the lens of the protected characteristic that they've been learning about. You could just give out your uniform policy to everybody in the room. And instead of doing what in the world at the beginning of your meeting, you could say, right, We've got the uniform policy. We're going to spend 15 minutes reviewing this uniform policy through the lens of our transgender and our non-binary children. And just see how many changes your senior leadership team are now able to make, all without the help of an external consultant. Just see how much motivation for practice that exercise alone will encourage. Hugely heartening able to stand in our, in our light as experts, able to do something that is ensuring the enactment of a policy that is no longer at detriment to that child, the parent who wrote in, that is no longer even neutral, just compliant, but actually that is beneficial, that is interrupting systemic inequity. And that is powerful extrinsic motivation. That is really powerful stuff. So let's recap. We want to recognize that the development of diversity, equity, and inclusion, IQ, intellectual quotient, as a leadership skill, is paramount. Okay, this is one of the things that I want to see when people are doing appraisals. I want to see this as um, as you developing leaders who are ready to become head teachers themselves, who can say. I've spent a lot of time with my head teacher developing 
D-E-I-I-Q. Our school was really committed to this. I feel very confident going into conversations with young people and stakeholders who hold protected characteristics. So your job first is to recognise that DEI-IQ and the development of it is a leadership skill. It's paramount. Then we're going to identify one specific goal each term. So improving the accuracy in our language pertaining to our transgender and neurodivergent young people could have been our specific goal for, for this term. And we're going to preserve time and we're going to create opportunities for deliberate practice. And then we're going to provide, as the leader, powerful feedback to our colleagues about how well they're doing with that language, how well they're doing with that new knowledge that they're gaining. At all times, we're going to lean into the discomfort of the work and we're going to celebrate the discomfort and we're going to notice that as us building muscle towards this skill, towards this excellence. And we're going to provide motivation for that deliberate practice. Thank you for listening to the Being Luminary podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, so please do leave us a review. Each month, I will be picking one of our reviewers to get a free laser coaching session as a thank you. And remember, if you know a luminary or an everyday thought leader who would benefit from listening to this podcast or who would love to be featured on the cast, then please do share it with them. This episode was presented by me, Angie Brown. Original music is by Martin Ostwick. The series is edited by Big Tent Media and produced by Emily Crosby Media.